0: Our whole thing is we grow the plant, like get the seeds and replant so we have a consistent product. We're finding that um, people actually understand that it's not just a piece of green or like that kind of thing, it's actually got a flavour and it's actually got a a purpose to actually be on the plates.
1: This is The Producers, I'm Danny Vallant. Lots of chefs talk about foraging these days, but what about someone who makes foraging their whole business? Liam Spurrell grew up in the hills on Melbourne's outskirts, where he now forages consistently and carefully, picking hundreds of herbs, fruits, and plants and delivering them to top restaurants. Up at dawn, he and his small team are able to gather in the morning and have ingredients on Melbourne restaurant tables in time for lunch. It's about flavour, creativity, a narrative, and, more than anything, a tangible connection to nature.
0: Uh, so I'm Liam Sparrow and I'm the director of Sparrow Foraging. So we used to be based out of a place called Warrandyte, which is about 40 minutes east of Melbourne. Um, until over COVID, just before COVID, we um, bought a farm out in Sylvan, which is at the back of Mount Downingong in the start of the Yarra Valley, which is about an hour out of Melbourne. So um, yeah, we're slowly moving up to here because at Warrandyte we had one acre but it's still so when we have 18 and a half acres. So there's just a lot more to work with and um, r- a lot more room to expand. Uh, so we basically sell like garnishes and native ingredients and everything to restaurants. That's a bit different. That's a bit harder to get your hands on. Um, so we still go out and actually forage in the wild for about 40% of our price list, And for about the other uh, 60%, we either um, grow it ourselves or we do work with a, few uh, groups in Adelaide that, um, so we can get native fruits and that kind of stuff.
1: Liam always wanted to be a chef and started working in kitchens as a teenager. Even during his very first weekend job at Mond, he began his days by foraging plants to take to the restaurant. I grew up
0: in Place Forward Park Orchard, which is like 500 metres from where our Warrandup Farm is, so uh, very local. And then um, when I started cooking, Uh, I was 14, working in uh, some restaurants. So my first um, introduction to a restaurant was one of my brothers worked at Budamont at the time. Um, And then we had the head chef of Budamont at the time, Corey Campbell, just came out to the area because it's a bit more of a wild area. We backed onto a um, park that was 100 acres and he just wanted to see what was around. So I was 14 at the time and... I think I wanted to be a chef since I was about six. So I just asked him, can I work in, like, come in every Saturday and just see what it's like. And he went, yeah, sure, as long as you bring in your, like, some of these things, all our um, herbs and that. So every Saturday morning I'd start picking and got taken into the restaurants and actually seeing what it was like and that kind of thing. So from about 14 to 15-ish, I was doing every Saturday at Beaumont um, that was when it still was at Normby Chambers, just about to transfer up to where Rialto is, where it is now. And then, um, because my brother was working there, I kind of wanted to not be someone's brother at the time. So I actually went to Cutler & Co. for almost five years after that. So that was a uh, great place to work out with, um, JP and Chris Watson. So that was my two head chefs at the time. So, um, we worked really but with down, and I was always still going out picking and making sure we had all like the strange and like things that no one else had. So after that, I went back to Bistro Vu for a bit, for about a year. Um, that was just to work on like getting more my like, classic techniques a bit better. So I worked for there for a year and then went back to View de Mon for about a year and that was when um, Stevie Naren was working, uh, head chef there. So I was there for about a year and then I was actually thinking of going to, after that, I was thinking of going to Sydney to work for a bit. And then I was just called up by a friend to work at um, Estelle by Scott Pickett. So I actually went up, went there to like just help out for a few weeks while I was deciding. Then they offered me a full-time job and I worked there for about a year. But um, after a few months there, Josh Pelham just left. And then Stephen narn my head chef at Un, One, came to work with me. So that was um, one of the places I worked at that I was a bit more, well, the most hands-on and actually, like, really started realising foraging could actually be a um, like bit more of a career because we were always talking about it like he was talking. You can never really, like, who else has all these ingredients that uh, we can get because no one does it. So that kind of gave me a thought, like, if I do enough research, why can't I... Um, try and turn this into a business and if like Estelle um, was the only place that had those ingredients at the time, why should I, why can't I start a business and try and bring it to everyone who's interested? So yeah, we started having a thought about that and then um, basically I just took the leap and tried it out and it was for about two, three months. I was just putting petrol in my car. That's all the money I was making because I picked up what, four or five restaurants in two months. So it was started off quite slowly. And then from there it was, you got a call by Sean Quaid at Lumet at the time. And from there we just went from five in what, three, four months to 10 at six months to 20 at eight months. And yeah, it really started running from there.
1: Foraging sounds cool, but it's not as simple as seeing, stopping, picking and eating. Liam explains the rules around foraging and how he ensures the consistency, which is key to getting items on menu.
0: We actually go out and wild forage for about 40% of our products. Um, So that is like we actually go out and find areas we're allowed to pick, which is always a bit harder because there's always specific areas you can and can't pick from um, just because of laws and to just respect the land. Um, and then for the rest of it, um, just cause we supply all the restaurants, we, our whole philosophy is like try and get consistency and everything for the restaurants. Cause I'm a former chef and I know the hardest thing to do is make sure you get the same thing every day, day in, day out to garnish all the same dishes. So that's why we actually started growing things. So we have, if we have a storm or something and one of our patches gets destroyed, we still have one, like a backup here that we can actually keep going and keep, um, trying to supply, like, to everyone so they get what they want. So it's more like you can't go into certain nature reserves or um, state parks. So it's that kind of thing, like, and around beaches. So it's like that. But um, you can forage on what's called Queensland, which is – oh, Kingsland now, which would be, um, like, nature strips and all that kind of thing, like, and just, like, sides of the roads and – certain middle forests you have to do a lot of research to actually find out where you can and can't pick which was when I started the business was the whole thing it was about four or five months of actually just doing research of where I can and can't so it's just doing that and uh, being informed and then um we do find certain patches that are on private land we just end up going to ask the owners like if they're okay with it and they if they say yes or no we go from there.
1: Foraging is a way to source exciting wild-grown plants with robust flavour. Liam collects most produce himself, but when it comes to indigenous plants, he works with expert Aboriginal-owned businesses in South Australia to ensure ethical supply.
0: So the biggest ones we get wild are things like um, all the fennels, like fennel, fennel flower, because we we wild forage forage our own fennel pollen. Uh, All our things like watercress and that kind of stuff is all still wild, like sheep sorrel, wood sorrels... That kind of stuff. Um, we find when you actually go out in the wild, everything tastes a little bit better as well. Because um, in the like kitchens, we always use... Uh, remember, I used to use watercress and it was all, like, hydroponically grown and everything. And you try it and it just tastes like water, basically. But um, when you actually go out in the wild, you find it actually has a bit more flavour. It has, like, a big, strong pepperiness to it. So you have things like that. And then um, you get a lot of the natives, like, you can find a few lemon myrtles, things like that, around... But just Victoria's a bit hard because all the native plants that people know and like that fruit really well aren't from Victoria. So we do stem, uh, tend to have a few more of the um, non-natives. But we end up going to get things like uh, Mount, uh, Tasmanian mountain and pepper, which grows up closer to the Alpine region around here. So we have plenty yeah. of that coming around too. We work with uh, the two places in South Australia. So it's a place called Something Wild, which is owned by Daniel Motlop. Um, so that's an indigenous owned company. So we work quite closely with them because they can get all beach herbs and everything. Um, Cause they're like an indigenous owned, they um, have all the permits, which is a lot harder to get in Victoria. And then um, we also work with a company called creative native who basically work quite closely with a lot of indigenous communities all over Australia. And they just collate all the like native fruits and um, that kind of thing. Like they get, the Davidson plum trees basically buddy nuts, all the fruits you can think of, um, and they collate it and we get it from them. Um, we find it's easy to do with those guys to do it because in Victoria it's a bit harder to um, work with indigenous communities because they're a bit more sparse um, compared to working with places in, like, South Australia Western Australia and Northern Territory areas like that. So we've just basically done... All I can do, our due diligence, make sure we're not basically taking the piss out of anyone around here, and then um, working with companies in like, over there just to um, make sure we're getting it from an ethical place, and we know exactly where it comes from, and um, like we know everyone's being treated fairly.
1: As a former chef, Liam had a pretty good way into many top restaurants. He explains how being fluent in chef speak has been an asset for his business.
0: Basically, starting business, I... Uh, my first almost 10 customers were just people I used to work with that had become head chefs or owners so we had that and then um we found that like just by talking to them it made it a lot easier and a lot more accessible for everyone to actually use because like you go to someone who like hasn't had any like knowledge about kitchens or anything or just the way to talk to chefs like it, chefs are pretty unique in the way they speak to each other so it's um, just one of those things. Then just being able to be a bit more creative with it. Like if you have an ingredient and they go, uh, there are a few chefs that like come up to me and they go, I have this dish, what do you recommend? Uh, my whole thing is I'll try and go with two things that are pretty standard or pretty quite easily match and then go with a few things quite like different or a bit interesting that might work, might not work, just see how they go. So it's always very like good to be able to actually know like which way to go with everything, say, like, yeah, just as I said, being, like, go the safe way or go something a bit different, a bit funky that might turn out well. And um, a lot of chefs really like to be able to be a bit more creative and do something a bit different that nobody's really seen. So it's good to work with them. And then I get ideas from some places I hear they'll have a dish, like, that they had born four years ago and they had some strange, like, flavour combination. I'll go, I've seen this before, why don't you try it out?
1: The early bird doesn't just get the worm, it also gets the best wild herbs and plants. Liam talks us through a typical day.
0: Basically, I wake up an hour and a half, two hours before the sun even rises, just to get, because um, we pick fresh every day for our restaurants. So we wake up, basically put in all our paperwork and get everything ready. And then first, um, like when the first, the sun first comes up, we uh basically out picking straight away. So we have all different spots. So we have about, um, we have four different pickers going to all different locations. So we have one that stays on the farm at Rwandite, which is where we keep a lot of our um, like older plants just because we've been there for the longest. So things like our mountain marigolds and a lot more established things are down there. And then we also have one person going wild foraging Uh, near Warrantyte because um, it's a lot lower to uh, ocean. So it's a bit warmer there and it's a bit more, like you get slightly different things from Sylvan. So we have that. And then uh, we have a picker at the five at Sylvan, which is a lot of our greens and flowers now. Um, And then I'm normally going out and doing like the big forages of like the bulk things or the slightly harder to find things. So we do that for about, we normally pick for about, Two two and a half hours in the morning, um, and then we take everything back to our packing shed, and then we basically pack everything, and then we're on the road from about nine thirty ten o'clock because uh, we deliver to all restaurants ourselves as well, so we're a full service. So we're probably I'm up at five a.m. and then on the road till three four o'clock, um, and then basically get back. Uh, organize the next day and then um, make sure everything at the farm's like all watered and just do all the bits and pieces during the day so it's pretty full on and yeah we do it five days a week delivering and then because I've got the farm now it's basically a seven-day job so um, yeah always up and around doing something at least when I'm around so we just walk around with we have like black like crates um, and we have basically our containers so we Walk around with our stack of containers of what we need for the day because we like pick fresh every day for the restaurant, we pick just what we need so we don't have any wastage. So we make sure we do that, and um, basically we just walk around, pick what we all we need, and then um, pack it all away straight away, and then basically just go to all our different patches and do the same thing. So we have it all packed fresh into the container. Um, we go back, if it's a bit dirty, we give it a rinse, and then yeah have it um, packed and straight in the cars. So basically what there are restaurants to get, if you're having lunch at midday at some of the restaurants we supply, that's been picked at 8am that day.
1: Farming is hard enough, but by its very nature, foraging encounters more variables. Whether it's wallabies, rain or snakes, there are always challenges.
0: The weather's a big one, especially this year, cause we've had an insane amount of rain. Um, so basically, the whole thing with that is if we have a damaged product or something, I can call up a restaurant and suggest a like something, uh, a replacement for them, like something similar or that. We find, um, where we are, we don't really see that many people because our patches are a bit more hidden just because we explore and go a bit deeper. But it's, um, normally the wildlife fits a bit, you can encounter some, um, pretty cool thing. sometimes. Like near my farm, we walk out the back um, to go get some things near the dam and every morning there's wallabies just jumping around or if we're down in Wurrida, you have to keep an eye out in like the really hot weather. We normally don't send people out just because of snakes and that kind of thing. So it's um, the big two things are, yeah, weather and wildlife.
1: Over a dozen years of business, Spiral Foraging has expanded from an offering of around 10 ingredients to a list of 200 plus. Even so, the journey is just beginning as Liam and his team discover more ingredients and chefs continue to open their minds and experiment.
0: So basically back then I was getting 10, maybe 15 things and that's all I really knew because I, to be honest, like to this day, I don't really know a whole lot about like farming and everything and growing just because I'm a trained chef. All my farming techniques are all like just self-taught and experimenting so we do that, but like um, I am find that every year we, people like chefs, they always want something new, something a bit different. So it's always my job to just try and keep up and try and come up with something new and something a bit stranger, a bit more different to actually show chefs. Um, so I find that every, since then, which was what, 2010-ish, um, like the amount of ingredients, like from 2010 there was 10, 15 ingredients people used, maybe 20. And then from there to about 2014, you get it up to about 40 different like native or something a bit stranger. And then right now, like on our list, we have at least 200 uh, items. So it's always just like people have this and then they want more. And um, it's all just as well, like we're still just discovering uses for all the natives and all that kind of thing and discovering what they are and how actually good they are and how to actually use them. So I think that's the big thing It's just we have to just try and keep up and actually showing everyone all the native ingredients because, like, we show someone and they'll try it and I'll be like, yeah, we'll think about how to do this. And then six months later, they have an idea and then that dish won't come on for another six months until it's back in season. And um, it's basically always just playing catch-up. So it's always just expanding, like, slowly and slowly. But it's actually... Everyone's just uh, in the past, like two three years, especially since COVID. Um, everyone's just wanting to try all the natives, all the things a bit different, and um, yeah, it's just actually been really good um, over that time to actually showcase what ingredients are actually out there.
1: Whatever you do, don't call them micro herbs. Liam explains the difference. A
0: lot of people used to think that my stuff was basically just garnish and. It was basically equivalent to microherbs, which is one thing I despise, like I can't stand microherbs, because the whole thing is basically you grow a plant to two centimetres and cut it off, it doesn't have a chance to develop any flavour or anything. So, and like, our whole thing is we grow the plant, like get the seeds and replant, so we have a consistent product. We're finding that um, people actually understand that it's not just a piece of green or a like that kind of thing. It's actually got a flavor and it's actually got a, a purpose to actually be on the plates. So it's, um, yeah, one of just, it's more education and it's the customers are getting more educated nowadays, nowadays too. So it's just not like you don't get customers that see a little bit of garnish and flick it off anymore. They just leave it on and go, that must be part of the dish, which is, um, actually getting quite refreshing because it used to be like you'd put something on the plate and like we'd have things like, um, our native mint and everything that, got like a little bit of eucalyptus taste to it and all that the people just take off and then it just flattens the dish so it's just a lot of education and people actually understanding that like people are using things for a reason
1: the hills are alive with plants yet to be harvested and the farm is a work in progress Whatever else it will be, the future is sure to be busy as lamb continues foraging, harvesting and educating.
0: Not really, it's just more we're always working on, like, new products, as I was saying, but um, we're also working on trying to build our farm at because it's 18 and a half acres. Um, we're just trying to uh, eventually build it to become a, like, little weekend, like, day trip, um, little area to come to for, like, groups of chefs and that kind of thing just so they can actually come and understand what like how things actually grow because a lot of people just there's delivery straight to their door like they never go out never see where it comes from never see how it grows and don't know how it is so um, we're actually slowly um, putting our farm up to become a bit more of a educational experience too for everyone so that's one of our big goals for we're trying to plant out like a little native forest. it will be about two acres and really go out and show people like how growing this kind of thing actually works. especially just to give the ingredient a bit more respect because I remember when I was in kitchens, like for, I know, like the McConnell Group, which is Cutler & Co and all that, they have, like, used to have little education days. So every second Monday, they'd have one of the suppliers come out and talk about, like, their product. And whenever I went to them, it was always something that, like, you don't really know the product. Like, you can read about it all you want until you actually see it. And then you actually having more respect and a bit more, like, imagination to actually use it and things like that, which I find is a lot more, like, I always found it interesting and I know a lot of chefs really love coming out and actually seeing, like, how it works and how everything, where everything comes from. So just one of those things, just I loved it when I was working, so I'm sure there are other people that will too.
1: Being in nature is a daily joy for Liam Sparrow. What else does he love about what he does? for probably the freedom
0: of being able to do basically what I want to do kind of thing. So it's, at the end of the day, I'm my own boss at the end, um, so I can do that. And then like building out the farm, because I live on the farm now, just being able to wake up every day and realise where I am and that kind of thing is just waking up and actually realising that I live in a place that's quiet and I can actually work at kind of my own pace. We always still have to be rushed to actually get everything out. But um, yeah, it's just one of those things where I can be me when I do it.
1: As a former chef who grew up connected to nature, Liam is the perfect person to bridge the gap between foraged bounty and the way it's used in restaurants. Alongside key partnerships with native ingredient producers, he's part of a force making restaurant food more interesting, delicious, and connected to the local environment. This is The Producers, a Deep in the Weeds production. I'm Danny Vallant. Stay tuned as we talk to some of Australia's best farmers, makers, and growers. Follow us on Instagram at Producers Podcast or contact us via deepintheweeds.com.au.